All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We're going through the Bible. Title of our message is Be Careful Your Isms Are Showing. Okay, everybody look at the title. Your Isms Are Showing. And you'll see how that relates to the Bible study. And as we go through this, we're going through the Bible. This is where we find ourselves. Um, it's just important that we take personal account to the scriptures and we apply it personally. It's easy to listen, sit in on a study, and be able to think, hey, man, I wish that person was here to hear that. You know, it's perfect for them. Why aren't they here today? But let's make sure that we take into consideration what the Lord is speaking to us personally. And the reason I say this is because I've kind of stumbled along in my Christian walk with all of these isms. We'll look at intellectualism, asceticism, mysticism, um, legalism, and oftentimes that's the struggle as Christians as we begin to grow in the things of the Lord. Um, sometimes we'll put on others what um, maybe what we're going through, what we're learning. If the Lord is giving you a conviction, take that conviction in, grow in that conviction, but remember salvation is a free gift from God, and He accomplishes that through the cross, and the significance and the importance of the cross is very important. So be careful your isms are showing. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 23. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you've given us this incredible word. It, it guides us, Lord. It directs us. It uh, transforms us from the inside out, Lord. It does so many wonderful things, but, Lord, it also warns. It also exhorts, it also admonishes, it also rebukes and corrects. And so, Father, we want to be those who aren't merely hearers of the word, but doers in the sense that we take to heart what you are saying. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time in your word, and we pray that you bless this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Colossians chapter 2. Paul would be writing to this church in the city of Colossae. He's imprisoned in Rome at the time. He writes to the church of Ephesus as well as to this church of Colossae. He sends both of those letters uh, through the hands of Epaphras, who would be the pastor of Colossae, and he would deliver those letters. Another one was included, Laodicea, the, the letter to the Laodicean church, but we don't have that letter. I guess that would be a private letter not included in the canon of Scripture. But nonetheless, those three letters would go. And so this is one of them. There were, Paul would never have visited this church, but he knew that there was a church that had been established in the city. And so uh, last time we went through chapter 2, we were looking at verses 1 through 11. I wanted to pick it up back starting at verse 8 because that's where uh, intellectualism comes in. And so let's just pick it up right there. It's... Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8, it says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so through that philosophy, intellectualism would come in. It would creep in. Hey, I have superior knowledge. I have a better understanding than that small little group over there in Colossae. All they know is Jesus and him crucified. And yet, that's all we need to know. That's everything. Right there is all the knowledge that we need. 
Jump back over with me to Colossians chapter 2. We'll pick it up at verse 2. It says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? They're found in Christ. They're found in God. They're found in the simplicity of what God has done through us, for us through the cross. And so there was nothing else intellectually that needed to be added. Now, are we growing in the grace and knowledge of, of God's word? That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But are these, these secret hidden messages that the Colossians or that the, the group was trying to bring to this church in Colossae? And he was saying, guys, don't be deceived. There's no secret hidden messages. In fact, this mystery from long ago would be that the Gentiles would be included in the faith, that the Gentiles would come to knowledge of Christ and salvation. And then he would say, Christ in me, the hope of glory, is this mystery. And so the fact that Christ would dwell in us, that our bodies would become the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we would be the very holy of holies where God's Shekinah glory would dwell, that's the mystery that is now revealed. He goes on in verses 9 and 10, for in him, speaking of Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So we're complete. We're not missing anything. There's no secret knowledge that we need to get. There's no secret rituals that we need to go through or to. It's all found in Christ. Say, connected, stay tapped in to the source that God is, and you'll see that as you grow in that, you'll have everything you need. Let's pick it up at verse 11. I'm I'm looking at my wife. She's like, (laughs) I, I, I think it was true what I said. Okay, verse 11. Now he continues on. He says, in him, speaking of who, Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so the Judaizers would come in and they would say that these Gentiles in Colossae needed to be circumcised if they were really going to be spiritually minded. And Paul is pointing out what is circumcision? It's a cutting away of the flesh of your heart. It's not necessarily a cutting away of the foreskin and just that. It's not a physical act. It was a shadow. It was something that was picturing what God wanted to do by cutting away the flesh. Replacing your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh that would beat after his own heart. In Romans chapter 2, let me read you these two verses. Romans chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 The Bible says, for he is not a Jew. What does the word Jew mean? A praise unto God. Judah, praise unto God. So he is not a Jew. He's not a person who's praising God, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So as we live as unto a praise unto a God, unto God, then our praise comes from God, not of men. So we're not doing what we do for man. We're not doing what we do to be seen of men. 
we're doing what we do from an inside outward work for God. And who commends us? Who gives us a commendation? Who says, hey, that's a praise unto me? God does. And so, again, throughout my walk, I've noticed um, sometimes because you're in church and you're in religious circles and you kind of hear these different things and you have your own personal struggles that you're working out, that you're working through, sometimes you get off and you put those things on others. You, you, whatever God is showing you, you're like, well, then this is for everybody. And then you begin to burden people down with these things. And God is saying, no, 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 live for me. Walk with me. Talk with me. Let me grow you up. The struggles that you have interior, surrender those to me. Give those to me. I will bring you along. I promise that I will grow you up in the things of God. And so, again, be careful as you put those things on others. And that's um, intellectualism in verse 8. And then now, oh, no, 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 we're not there yet. Um, Legalism will be in verse 16. Moving on after circumcision, then you go to verse 12. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so he goes from circumcision that would be a Judaizer, a Jewish thing of an outward thing, to now baptism for the Gentile church in the city of Colossae. Oh, then you have to be baptized to be saved, right? And if you're not baptized, once again, that outward thing that's taking place And he's saying, no, baptism is just merely showing that which has already taken place on the inside. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is obedience to God of something that's already been on the inside. I wrote this down. I said, what circumcision was to the Jew, baptism was to the Gentile church in Colossae. They were both designed to be an outward show of an already inward work. They were never a means of salvation, but a symbol of a cutting away of the flesh, circumcision, or a burial of the flesh, baptism, and a living to new life after the Spirit. And so it's not baptism. We're just identifying with Jesus. What is baptism? You go down into the watery grave. You die to the self, life. You come up in resurrected newness of life. Does that save you? I have to die and then be? No, it's an outward show of an already inward work. That's what salvation was. You died with Christ in salvation. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul would say. Nevertheless, I live. But not I, but the power of God, right? Uh, I live by the power of God, uh, by faith in the Son of, of God. And so we need to be careful once again as we put these things on people. Should you be baptized? Yeah, absolutely. Why? You identify with Christ. You obey the word of God. We're commanded to be baptized. Does baptism save you? No. No work can save us. We're saved by grace through faith. And that not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. So we need to be careful when we put these things on people. Do you have a conviction to be baptized? Then be baptized. If you have a conviction to be baptized, is baptism significant? Yeah. Again, you're identifying with Jesus. In our culture, it means next to nothing. In a Muslim culture, it means you're signing your death warrant. The minute they see you baptized as a Christian, they know that you're a Christian and now you're going to be killed. So big difference. And that's what it was in first century. It meant something much more than it means in our culture where, you know, you just basically got wet. 
But again, it's following an obedience to what God is calling us to. Moving on in verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart. Hold on. Let me read this question before we get there. Are you living uh, for the flesh or are you walking after the spirit? Are you spiritually minded man or woman? And this is how we'll know how. Verses 13 through 15. It says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, this is a lot of stuff that the cross produced. He starts by saying that he made you alive together with him. Alive together with him. That's through the rebirth, through being born again. I remember in the 70s when Pastor, uh, President Carter um, came into office and he was being interviewed and he identified himself as being a born-again Christian. And the term born again became politicized. It became almost a political identification as opposed to what it is in the Bible. In John chapter 3, the Bible says you must be born again. And so to be born again simply means to be born from above. That's what all Christians are born again. All Christians must be born again if they're going to enter into heaven. If we're not born again, then... As it, as it was said Tuesday at the uh, Young Adults Bible Study, if you're born twice, then you'll die once. But if you're born once, then you will die twice. And so to be born again means that we won't see death in the sense of eternal death. We'll only die once, and then we'll be resurrected to newness of life to be with God forever. But if you're only born once and you're not born again, then you die twice. You will experience eternal death and damnation, and judgment. And so very important that we understand that. So made alive together with him, forgiving you all trespasses, he goes on to say in that section. What did the cross accomplish? The cross accomplished forgiving you all trespasses. This is great news. Great news for me because I stumble. I struggle on the daily, weekly, monthly. Sometimes I do better than other times, but I'm so thankful that On the cross, Jesus carried all of my trespasses, all of my sins, all of my shame, all of my guilt. He goes on to say, wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Wiped out the handwriting. This is what I picture it. Remember that section in Daniel chapter 4 where Belshazzar, the king, takes the elements from the temple of God. His father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken them out of the temple when they conquered Israel. They took those those cups and those basins and all of those things that were in the temple to be used only for holy purposes, silver and gold and precious metals. And he's putting alcohol in them, and he's having a a drunken orgy party in 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 the palace. And the hand of God comes through and breaks through the perimeter and begins to write on the wall many, many tekel, you farsin, whatever it says. You've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. You've come up short. 
you've not reached the standard of perfection. And I think that's me. If God's hand were to break through and write my sins on the wall and and the things that I do, he'd say, Johnny, you fall short of my standard. You've been weighed in the balance. And as I put perfection on one side and I put your life on on the other side, you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. And what does this scripture say that Jesus accomplished on the cross? Wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Jesus' death did that for us. He wiped it out. It's obliterated. And so though I may be lacking, though I may fall short, though his finger writes everything that I've failed, it's that same hand that that finger is connected to that was nailed to a wooden cross that carried, that blood shed and carried those very handwritings that was against me on his body, on my behalf. What did wiped out a handwriting of requirements accomplish, which was contrary to us, taken it out of the way, nailed it to the cross. It says right there in that section. He goes on to say, disarm principalities and powers. Think about that. Satan, in his greatest moment, thinking that he's done with Jesus. I've, I've, I've moved Judas Iscariot to hand him over, to betray him. And and now I've moved these religious leaders to kill him, to have him crucified. And and I've moved the Roman government to participate and cooperate. I'm ruling this world. I've got his disciple, Judas Iscariot, in my hands. I've got these religious leaders. I've got the Roman government. And Jesus is hanging on the cross. And and, and uh, Satan, uh, Satan's greatest defeat would be what? His His greatest victory in his mind would be his greatest defeat. Where Jesus would turn the tables and say, yeah, but this was God's plan all along. I'm carrying the sins of the world on this cross. My blood is being shed, poured out for them. He disarmed principalities and powers. He took the bite out of Satan and his attack against you and me as his children. No longer do we need to be ruled by demonic forces and entities, by satanic things. Any permission that Satan has, we give it to him as children of God. He disarmed principalities, and powers. What did that accomplish? He made a public spectacle of them, it says, and he triumphed over them in it. And I can't help but see this public spectacle of them as, you guys remember the, the, the movie, what is it, The Passion of the Christ, where Jesus just stomps on the head of the serpent? And I just, I see that as like, he just punked them can't think of a a better word than just he just like put them in their place i rule over you i am creator i did this with both hands tied behind my back i came into this world as a baby what could be more vulnerable and as an innocent little baby you could have destroyed me you had all this power that you have and you did nothing and you thought killing me was going to be your victory And I just see that as Jesus saying, you ain't got nothing, nothing on me. And so we're 
foolish as God's children when we give Satan room in our lives to operate. We're, we're ridiculous. It's just, it's unfathomable that we would be so dumb to do that when we participate with these fleshly desires that we have. God is saying, don't you know the victory that you have in me? I won't force you, but I triumph over those round, that realm, over those powers, principalities and powers. Incredible. Verse 16, we see what legalism looks like. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. So now in legalism, well, I don't do these things or, or I do these things. I worship on this special day. And so that makes me, that makes you what? A better Christian? That makes you holier? That makes you stand above from the rest? And I, I eat these foods and I don't eat these foods. And, and I refrain from that and all of these different things. And people will have this, what, spiritual pride elevated in their heart because there's a point of comparison. And in the scriptures, I find it interesting. The only people comparing themselves in the scriptures are the Pharisees. God, I thank you that I'm not like this publican. I fast twice a week and I give of my tithes and so on and so forth. We have to be careful as Christians when we are comparing ourselves to one another, saying, I'm more spiritual because I do this or I don't do this. If you do this or you don't do this, hey, more power to you. Woo-hoo. Hope that's working out for you. But be careful when we put that on other Christians. Be careful when we're having an expectation of where we think they should be in their walk with the Lord. I'm so glad that God does it because he's so tender with it. He's so gentle with it. He's so gracious with it as he grows us up it's this supernatural thing that he's doing from the inside out and it's right on time and you know what maybe we are struggling in certain areas that somebody else isn't struggling in but my god knows when will be the right time to bring me along and to grow me up in that thing to mature me in that thing to convict me of that thing and so as we participate with god make sure that you're doing that and yeah, you know, people are going to have their opinions and they're going to have their thoughts and they're going to have their ideas of where we should be. And go ahead and take it in. Oh, thanks. Appreciate your opinion. Everyone's got one. But God is working in this area in my life right now. And be diligent to make sure that you're getting from God at least what he's giving you. In legalism, we see in verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. And so why do people point to these? Well, I, I worship on this special day. And if you don't worship on this special day, then I don't know if you guys know this, but Sunday is the devil's day. What? What? Isn't there a scripture in Romans that says, hey, one individual uh, worships on this day and that's a special day for them. And another individual, they take every day alike and every day is special to them. Let each one be convinced in his own mind okay so if somebody worships on saturday or somebody worships on sunday or tuesday or whatever day they want then then let them worship on that day but don't think that your day makes you more special because that was a shadow and how ridiculous it is to worship the shadow when the shadow is pointing to the substance what's the substance 
Jesus. Jesus is the substance. And the Sabbath day was pointing to Jesus. And so you have people that will worship on Saturday that will elevate Saturday and say because they worship on Saturday, they're more holy. Jesus makes us holy, not the Sabbath. Sabbath was a type of rest. Jesus is our rest. And we rest in Jesus. He did it on the cross for us. Moving on in verse 18, you see mysticism. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by the fleshly mind. And so now you're starting to go into spiritualism and spiritual things. Well, <laughs> I communicate with angels. Well, be careful. You might be communicating with demons, fallen angels. And I see this a lot in um, a lot of different religions, uh, Native American religions. They'll, they'll consume uh, hallucinative, I don't know what those drugs are called. They make you hallucinate. They make you loopy. And then now you're in, in, in touch with this spiritual realm and you're inviting spirits in and you want them to communicate with you. Whoa, whoa. Now we need to watch that stuff because you're definitely communicating with spirits. They're just not the right ones. And so, again, those people will elevate themselves as, well, I've had this, I've had this experience that you haven't had. You know what? God uniquely knows you. God knows what you need. He knows how he wants to communicate with you. And that's kind of the trouble that I have with personal testimonies. I think personal testimonies are great because they point to the power of God. But here's why I don't like them. I don't like them because sometimes you think, well, God worked in that person's life like that. So maybe he needs to work in my life exactly like that. No, God knows you. And it's a personal relationship that God has with you. And he knows how he wants to communicate with you. And so accept that, receive that, enjoy that, appreciate that. He knows what you need uniquely. Let him do that. Verse 19, he says, And not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. And so instead of these experiences... You have access to Christ, the head. You ever see a chicken running around without a head? No? Anybody see that on the farm? Just Google it. Chicken running without a head. Yeah, the head could be chopped off, but the nerves are still kicking, and that thing is, whoo, it's running and slamming into the wall. It's crazy, right? And that's a lot of religious people. They're disconnected from the head who is Christ. And it looks like activity. Whoa, wow, they're doing a lot of stuff. They're really moving pretty fast there. But you're going to burn out. You're going to wipe out. Pretty soon you're going to flop over. Stay connected to the head. Stay connected to the source. It's not about these mystical experiences that we can have outside of ourselves, getting in touch with these realm. Stay connected to the head in the simplicity of what salvation is in Christ. You have everything that you need in Christ, not in all these crazy experiences. The last one is mystic oh no, asceticism, verses 20 through 22. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle 
which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. And so that outward, well, again, I'm holier than that group or I'm holier than you because, <laughs> yeah, I don't do that or I don't touch that or bacon, never on these lips. And what I, what I find is people will read the Old Testament and they'll see the law, they'll see the law, and they'll say, well, then that's the law, and, and that's God's heart, and if God required that, then it must be a good thing, and, you know, no shrimp and no lobster, because they're bottom dwellers, they're like cockroaches of the sea, and, you know, not eating lobster and shrimp is going to make me holier, it might make you a little healthier, but it's not going to make you holier. And so if you abstain from those things for health reasons or because you just love God's little creatures, that's cool. I'm not putting that down, but we're talking about spirituality and we're talking about being close to God, okay? In the law, you have three components. You have the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the dietary laws, okay? Which continues on in the New Testament, the moral law. We still don't lie. We still don't steal we don't commit adultery and those types of things. So the moral law is still intact. Ceremonial, dietary, that's for the nation of Israel. And here's what I've deduced through study. I don't know if I've ever heard this. I just, I, this is just what I've come to in my own studies. God was trying to bring a Messiah through a line. And when all the other nations were dying off in the, in the you know, back in those days, um, from eating pork that was not refrigerated from, you know, eating bottom dwellers because they had diseases within them and they didn't have the medicines and the, and the things that we have access to, even just simple refrigeration, then those nations were dying off and somehow the nation of Israel just kept coming through to bring the Messiah. And I think a lot of that, yes, they were shadows. Yes, they were types pointing to the Messiah, to Jesus. But I think it was just common sense on God's part to say, I'm bringing a Messiah through a line of people, through this nation of Israel, and through these dietary laws and these ceremonial laws would all point to the Messiah. That's what he was accomplishing. And so, again, you can go ahead and, all right, you, you follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament, and you like the festivals and the ceremonies that were in the Old Testament, and so you're going to hold to those. That's fine. I guess you could do that, but that doesn't make you holier. That doesn't make you closer to God because God loves you unconditionally. He doesn't place restraints or requirements on the love that he bestows to you. And, and we don't understand that. And I believe that the reason we don't understand that is because there's nothing in the world to compare it to. In the world, everything is, is a merit system. Everything is a give and take, except maybe a mother and her love for her little baby that would die without her. That's probably the, the, the closest thing that we have to agape love is a mother and her unconditional love to that little crying baby that just wants and takes and takes and takes, right? And then it grows up, and then hopefully you get a little something back. But he smiled at me, and that was just, oh, that was everything. Okay, maybe it smiled at you. But for the most part, it gives you nothing. <laughs> Verse 23, our last verse, and this ties it in together really good. He says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, 
but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What a concluding verse. So you can do all of these things. Intellectualism. I know so much more than somebody else. Yeah, that's really not going to do anything if you're not connected to the source. If you're not tapped into God. Well, legalism. I've got all these do's and don'ts and these rules and regulations. And this is how I'm, this is how you're living, but you're not closer to God because of that. Because God loves you and he's always close to those who would just simply look to him and call upon him. Well, well it's mysticism. It's, it's these out-of-body experiences that I have. These, ooh, I get the heebie-jeebies. I get goose pimples every once in a while. No, that's not, again, that's not how God works. He works in the simplicity of speaking to you through his word, his love letter. Well, well, it's asceticism. I don't touch this. I don't touch that. I do this, and oh my gosh, they do that, right? No, it's a none of that. None of that has a value in the battle with your flesh. He, he concludes with, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh, what is the value against the indulgence of the flesh? Tapped into the source. Making sure that you're getting your marching orders from the head, Jesus. Holding to the simplicity of what the gospel is, that Jesus Christ died for you, and that he wants to raise you up in newness of life as you continue to walk with him and participate with him. And he will complete that work that he's begun. That's what's valuable for this indulgence against the flesh, having a power that's outside of yourself because you are no match for your own flesh with this world and the devil and the temptations that will come your way. It comes back to a simplicity of Jesus is enough. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that sometimes, though we get stuck or trapped or kind of, brought into this idea, Lord, that there's something deeper, something bigger, something better. Lord, it's all found in you. It's all found in a relationship with you. It's all found in being tapped into the source, Lord, and just simply allowing you to supernaturally work in and through our lives what we could never do in and of ourselves. Lord, you are the author and the finisher of our faith, and you promise that he who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so, Father, thank you so much for the simplicity that is found in you. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't burden others with things that we're trying to work out. As the Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But Lord, that we would be gracious with others, that we would leave room for you to work in the depth of people's hearts. And Lord, if they ask, then we can give an answer with gentleness and meekness, as the scripture says, but a lot of people aren't asking. And Lord, sometimes we're volunteering our opinions about what people should be doing. And so help us, Lord. Help us to walk by faith, looking to you, being a light, being salt in this world, but careful, Lord, careful to uh, truly, Father, just allow you to do the work deep within the hearts of people as they need that work, Lord, supernaturally. And so I pray that you would continue, Father, just to be with us, guiding us. In Jesus' name, amen.